Welcome to the November 24th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss patient-reported outcomes in the Phase 3 Zuma 7 trial of CAR T-cell therapy in second-line relapsed refractory large B-cell lymphoma. Learn more about the association between the loss of alpha-4A and beta-1 tubulin and severe platelet spherocytosis, and discuss the interaction between prebiotic galacto-oligosaccharides and mouse gut microbiota in graft-versus-host disease. Our first blood article is entitled Patient Reported Outcomes in Zuma 7, a Phase 3 Study of Axicabdigene Silalusol in Second-Line Large B-Cell Lymphoma by Mahmoud El-Sawi from the Queen Elizabeth II Health Sciences Center in Canada and a group of international colleagues. Patients with Large B-Cell Lymphoma, or LBCL, who relapse after or are refractory to first-line chemoimmunotherapy typically have poor outcomes. The standard of care treatment for these patients is high-dose chemotherapy with autologous stem cell transplantation, or HDCT-ASCT. However, many patients may not be good candidates for HDCT-ASCT or relapse early after treatment. Axicaptogene silalusol, also known as Axicel, is an engineered autologous anti-CD19 chimeric antigen receptor, or CAR, T-cell therapy, approved for use in patients with relapsed refractory LBCL who received two or more prior systemic therapies. In the pivotal Zuma-1 trial, 83% of patients with refractory LBCL treated with Axicel achieved an objective response, and 68% achieved a complete response. The five-year OS was 42.6%. Given this demonstrated efficacy of Axicel in the relapsed refractory setting, the authors conducted the Zuma-7 Phase 3 study, comparing Axicel against the standard of care in patients with LBCL whose disease was refractory or had relapsed within 12 months of first-line therapy. Axicel proved superior to the standard of care, with significantly longer median event-free survival, or EFS, of 8.3 versus 2 months, and a 24-month EFS rate of 40.5% versus 16.3%. Based on these findings, Axicel was approved by the FDA in the U.S. for adult patients with LBCL whose disease is refractory or has relapsed within 12 months of first-line chemoimmunotherapy. Although superior efficacy of Axicel was clearly demonstrated in Zuma 7, Axicel was also associated with a high incidence of side effects, including cytokine release syndrome, neurological events, and prolonged cytopenia which raised questions about its tolerability and the overall patient experience. In the current study, the authors report on the first comparative analysis of patient-reported outcomes from the Zuma 7 trial, comparing patients with CAR T-cell therapy versus the standard of care. The Zuma 7 trial randomized patients one-to-one to either Axicel or standard of care therapy. Patients in the Axicel arm received a three-day conditioning chemotherapy regimen before receiving a single intravenous infusion of Axicel at a dose of 2 times 10 to the 6th anti-CD19 CAR T-cells per kilogram. Patients in the standard-of-care arm received two to three cycles of platinum-based chemotherapy every two to three weeks, 
and those who achieved a complete or partial response proceeded to HDCT and ASCT. A number of patient-reported outcomes, or PRO, evaluations were administered at baseline, day 50, day 100, day 150, month 9, and every three months from randomization until 24 months, or an EFS event. The following PRO assessment tools were utilized. EORTC QLQC30, the EuroQOL EQ5D5L, and the WPAI GH version 2.0. A 10-point change on the QLQC30 and a 7-point change on the EQ5D5L VAS were defined as clinically meaningful changes. The quality of life analysis set consisted of patients with PRO evaluations completed at baseline and at one or more follow-ups. Of a total of 359 patients, 296, 165 from the AXIS-L arm and 131 from the standard of care arm, met the inclusion criteria for quality of life analysis. At day 100, statistically significant and clinically meaningful differences in the mean change of scores from baseline favoring AXIS-L over the standard of care were observed in three PRO assessments. Specifically, the estimated differences between AXIS-L and the standard of care for QLQ-C30 Global Health Status QOL, physical functioning, and EQ5D5L VAS assessments were 18.1, 13.1, and 13.7, respectively. At day 150, scores significantly favored AXIS-L over the standard of care for Global Health Status QOL, with a 9.8-point difference and EQ5D5L VAS with an 11.3-point difference. Based on these findings, the authors concluded that AXIS-L showed clinically meaningful improvements in quality of life over the standard of care. Coupled with superior clinical outcomes, these latest findings should help inform treatment choices in second-line, relapsed refractory LBCL. In an accompanying commentary, Nilanjan Ghosh, from the Levine Cancer Institute in Charlotte, North Carolina, notes that the results outlined by Alsawi and collaborators imply that AXIS-L is better tolerated compared to salvage therapy followed by ASCT, and that patients can regain their baseline quality of life sooner with AXIS-L. Ghosh further notes that one of the setbacks of utilizing PRO assessments is that there is variability in the type and timeline of assessments used in different studies. Standardization of PRO assessments may help with the interpretation of the quality of life measures in future studies. A question that remains is how the improved efficacy and tolerability of agents demonstrated in clinical trials can translate into benefiting patients with relapsed or refractory LBCL in the real world. Ghosh notes that there are multiple barriers to accessing these new effective treatments in the real world, including distance to a certified CAR T-cell center, delays in financial clearance, availability of slots for leukophoresis, and keeping the disease under control while awaiting a CAR T-cell product. Removing these barriers in a timely and efficient manner is critical to improving outcomes and the overall patient experience for relapsed refractory LBCL, he concludes. Next up, we'll discuss an article published in Blood entitled Loss of Alpha-4A and Beta-1 Tubulin Leads to Severe Platelet Spherocytosis and Strongly Impairs Hemostasis in Mice by Quentin Kimmerlin 
from the UMRS 1255 unit in Strasbourg, France, and colleagues. Blood platelets were first described in 1882 by Giulio Bizzozero as, quote, disc-shaped with parallel surfaces, end quote. The discoid morphology of blood platelets is maintained by a peripheral microtubule bundle known as the marginal band. Microtubules that make up the marginal band consist of heterodimers of alpha and beta tubulin subunits. To date, several tubulin isotypes have been described, including the divergent beta-1 tubulin and the more generic alpha-4a and alpha-8 tubulin isotypes. Mutations in these three isotypes lead to abnormal marginal band formation in humans, which in turn translates to decreased platelet counts and an overall loss of their disc-shaped form in favor of ovoid morphology. Researchers hypothesized that platelets evolved a flat shape to improve their ability to form tight aggregates by providing a greater surface for platelet-platelet and platelet-endothelial cell interactions. This hypothesis was corroborated by in vitro experiments, which demonstrated that spherical platelets translocated much faster in comparison to their disc-shaped counterparts on a von Willebrand factor matrix, a strong indication for a hemostatic role of disc-shaped morphology derived from a case report of a patient who presented with a bleeding tendency and severe platelet spherocytosis. A closer look revealed that his platelets were completely spherical and lacked a marginal band. However, studies of beta-1 tubulin-deficient mice found that they did not experience a significant increase in tail bleeding times, despite having reduced microtubule content and spherical platelets. In the current study, the authors set out to test the hypothesis that defects in both tubulin subunits may lead to a phenotype with a more severe marginal band defect and complete spherocytosis. To test this hypothesis, they conducted a series of experiments in a double knockout mouse model in which the genes for both beta-1 and alpha-4A tubulin were inactivated. Platelets were visualized using differential interference contrast microscopy. The tail bleeding assay and in vivo thrombosis experiments were used to analyze the animal's bleeding tendencies and propensity for thrombosis. The double knockout mice presented with fully spherical platelets that completely lacked a marginal band, the shape of erythrocytes and leukocytes, appeared to be unaffected. In double knockouts, 97% of the platelets lacked a discoid shape and 73% were completely spherical, whereas in beta-1 tubulin single knockouts, 68% lacked a discoid shape and 24% were spherical. Peritoneal bleeding was observed only in double knockout mice. Furthermore, the tail bleeding assay showed that mice with a double deletion had a severe bleeding defect, which was not corrected with infusions of the thrombopoietin analog romiplostim to increase their platelet counts. In in vitro experiments, platelets adhered less efficiently and formed smaller sized and loose aggregates when perfused over von Willebrand factor and collagen matrices. Observed defective hemostatic function in double knockout mice also correlated with impaired ability to form thrombi in vivo. Namely, double knockout mice did not exhibit thrombus formation and could form only a thin layer of loosely packed platelets. In contrast, single mutants and wild-type mice demonstrated arterial blockage under these conditions. In addition, in a model of thromboembolism, the double knockout mice were protected from thrombotic death caused by infusions of collagen and adrenaline. Taken together, these findings indicate that the lack of these two tubulin isotypes has a deleterious effect on flow-dependent aggregate formation and stability, 
and that blood platelets require two intact alpha and beta tubulin isotypes to maintain their characteristic discoid morphology. In an accompanying commentary, Robert Flomenhoft, from the Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, notes that the study by Kimmerlin and colleagues provides the strongest support to date that discoid shape is strongly associated with platelet prothrombic capacity. By increasing the surface area available for attachment to an injured surface, the discoid shape promotes the formation of durable, platelet-rich thrombi, capable of resisting the forces of shear generated by high flow rates in the circulation. Furthermore, Experimental findings outlined by Kimmerlin and collaborators indicate that the bleeding and thrombus formation defect in double knockout mice did not result from an activation defect, but rather from a defect in adherence to the vascular wall under flow conditions. Flomenhoff believes that more detailed studies of discoid versus spherical platelets will be required to understand exactly how the flat surface of the discoid platelet promotes thrombosis and whether its shape is also relevant for non-hemostatic platelet functions. In the final segment of today's podcast, we will discuss the report entitled Prebiotic Galacto-Oligosaccharides Interact with Mouse Gut Microbiota to Attenuate Acute Graft-Versus-Host Disease by Zachary Holmes from Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and colleagues. Graft-Versus-Host Disease, or GVHD, affects approximately 40 to 60% of patients treated with allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, or HSCT, and is a major cause of morbidity and mortality in these patients. GVHD is associated with disruptions in the composition of the gut microbiome, which occur as a consequence of prophylactic antibiotic therapy, chemotherapy, and radiation given in the scope of HSCT. Specifically, the administration of broad-spectrum antibiotics, such as piperacillin tazobactam or imipenem silostatin, around the time of transplant has been associated with gut microbiome dysbiosis and increased GVHD-related mortality. The proposed mechanism involves the depletion of commensal bacteria that produce short-chain fatty acids, which in turn leads to the loss of butyrate, disrupts enterocyte homeostasis, and impairs the differentiation or expansion of regulatory T-cells in the intestinal mucosa. Therefore, current research has focused on modulating alloreactive T-cells using microbial metabolites or on restoring microbial balance using interventions, such as fecal microbiome transfers and prebiotics. Early reports indicate that prebiotics may reduce the severity of GVHD without compromising patient safety. Galacto-oligosaccharide, or GOS, is a well-studied prebiotic with confirmed efficacy in reducing inflammatory gastrointestinal symptoms, promoting intestinal barrier function, improving NK cell activity, and modulating cytokine activity. In the current study, the authors aimed to assess whether supplementation with GOS can impact the microbiome and improve GVHD and survival in mice. Treated mice received 4% of their daily calorie requirements as GOS in their drinking water, and control mice received regular drinking water. The treatment commenced seven days before the transplant and continued until death or day 11 post-HSCT, whichever occurred first. Three days before the transplant, all animals were treated with imipenem silostatin, or IMI, to mimic the antibiotics' disruptive effects on the gut microbiome. 
On the day of the transplant, mice received 8.5 gray total body irradiation, followed by infusion of purified bone marrow and T-cells harvested from C57 black 6J donor mice. The authors found that GOS-supplemented mice had improved survival compared to unsupplemented mice, which was attributed to decreased GVHD severity as opposed to increased caloric intake from GOS. On day 14 post-transplant, the observed GVHD clinical score was lower in GOS mice compared to the controls. Histologic examination on day 14 showed decreased GVHD-specific pathologic changes of skin in GOS-treated mice, with no differences in GVHD of the gut or liver. Interestingly, GOS supplementation improved HSCT outcomes only in antibiotic-treated mice, indicating that prebiotics may attenuate the negative effects of antibiotics on the gut microbiome and clinical outcomes. Experiments conducted in Taconic and Jackson mice which have the same genetic background but different gut microbiomes, supported the hypothesis that GOS is differentially efficacious across mice harboring distinct microbiota. This observation suggests that prebiotic therapies might have to be adapted for individual patients. Gut microbiome analysis revealed that supplementing IMI-treated mice with GOS changed the composition of the microbiome and led to the expansion of butyrogenic bacteria. Specifically, GOS-treated mice had a lower abundance of Bacteroidaceae and Bacteroidalase S24-7 group families, and a higher abundance of Porphyra monodaceae, which is linked to butyrate production. In an in vitro fermentation model, GOS increased the capacity of the microbiome to produce more butyrate and other short-chained fatty acids, which are needed for the differentiation or expansion of regulatory T-cells in the intestinal mucosa. In an accompanying commentary, Christoph K. Stein-Thoringer from the University Klinik Tübingen in Tübingen, Germany, notes that the findings of Holmes and collaborators make an important contribution to the understanding of the complex diet-microbiome-host interactions in humans, which have shown to impact both immune function and cancer therapies. Of note, in experiments with Taconic and Jackson mice, Holmes and collaborators demonstrated that the metabolic output of a prebiotic-conditioned microbiome depends on the commensal composition. These findings indicate that dietary interventions with prebiotics should be tailored to the specific gut microbiome of the individual in the form of personalized supplementation. The work of Holmes et al. also raises several important questions that remain to be addressed in future studies. One is whether or not the short-chained fatty acid levels would also increase in vivo in GOS-supplemented allo-HCT laboratory animals, and how these metabolite changes may affect alloreactive T-cell immunophenotypes in the host. Another important question is why GOS failed to improve GVHD in allo-HCT mice that were not exposed to antibiotics. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.